Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. This is uh, week three of Revival Month. Revival Month is a regular rhythm in the life of our church where we spend an entire month focusing on elevating, increasing our desire for belief, expectation for revival. And uh, man, what an amazing 10 days of prayer and fasting it was. God uses seasons like this to catapult us forward in our own relationship with him, um, things that he wants to root out of us, to to remove from our hearts. And um, man, we had a, an epic prayer meeting on Friday night, the revival prayer finale. We went to new levels of man, just crying out to God for his presence, weeping before him for the lost, crying out to him to save people that we love. We know that um, revival is a sovereign move of God, but we also know that we have a part to play. We've been speaking in previous weeks from Second Chronicles 7. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. There's an if and then there's a then. The healing of our land depends upon the people of God doing the first part of that passage. And I wish I had these three points last week and I preached it, but it kind of came to me this week as I was thinking back through it. I just felt the Holy Spirit say, I, I need three things from you. If you want revival, I need your humility, I need your hunger, and I need your holiness. We can give him those three things. And so this is not, um, we're not moving on from this. This is the pursuit. The revival month is not, okay, well, revival month's finished, and now we can move on from, from revival. No, no, we are trying to cultivate in us a greater expectation, an understanding of what God wants from us so that he can bring change and transformation to the world. It begins with us. Revivals in history have um, always begun with just a handful of people. And that's why I loved even what we had on Friday night. It was really just a handful of people. There was maybe 15 of us, I don't know, 20 of us at at our home. Um, That's being generous counting the kids probably. (laughs) But, um, man, I, you know, I think about the revivals of, uh, I've heard about in the past in Scotland, two old women and seven young guys meeting together just until God would pour out his spirit. The Moravian church praying 24-7 for 100 years and sparking the first great awakening, which led to so much that God's done in, in the earth. But um, this week, I feel that the Lord wants to challenge us with that, that second H, the, the hunger. I feel he wants to provoke us to a deeper longing for him. We can't, there's, no matter what the desire we have had for him, there's always more of him that we can have. And all it takes is that next level of hunger. 
Revelation chapter two. I'm going to read um, first five verses here. But before we bring that up, I want to give you a bit of context. Um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, as we know, is a prophetic message from Jesus to the church. It was written in the first century and it had application and it was a direct message to the people at that time. There's certainly application for us and we can seek to understand what God's ultimate purpose is and, and what he, how he would instruct us from uh, his instruction to the church at that time. But um, this was a very dark time for the church. Um, the church had been growing for several decades. Uh, churches were being planted uh, but there was extreme persecution, not only from the outside with the Roman emperor at the time who was um, imprisoning people, killing people, killing Christians. I mean, there was extreme persecution, but there was also challenge from within many false teachers. The enemy was 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 uh, attacking the church from the outside, but also attacking the church from the inside. And so this first um few chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus begins by addressing specifically seven different churches. These were the seven most, most significant churches of the time uh, in this area called Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And the, the part that we're going to read, the first message to the first church was the church at Ephesus. This is the same church that that um, Paul was a part of planting. It was the same church that he wrote the, the, the Ephesians, book of Ephesians 2, the letter to the, the, the Ephesians church. And so Jesus, after that, after some time, is communicating this message to the Ephesians church. So beginning in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven Golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Amidst all the difficulty, everything going on, you've not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In the margin of the New Living Translation, there's a, a literal translation there. You have lost your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I want to preach a message today that is um, really inspired by um, a message that Pastor Corey shared with our, our, uh, some of our, our leaders uh, Pastor Stacy Hillier preached this message, a similar message in Melbourne. Pastor Corey preached it in Bangkok. There's a sense that, that there's a prophetic nature, a prophetic element to um, this message. 
from this passage of scripture to us as a church globally, to Numa Church. And so I want to challenge us as we're listening. Uh, I, I want us to chew on this word over the next week. I want to challenge you to spend some time meditating on this. I believe God's going to do something in our hearts today, but I, I think that um, I think there's something even beyond today that he can do in our hearts through this. So the title of this message today is Recovering Our First Love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're here. We thank you for how you've been with us as we've worshiped you. Jesus, you are the most important person in our lives. Father, if we're being honest, there's will have been areas of apathy, passivity. Maybe some of us have known you in the past and have really not known you more recently. Maybe we've heard about you in the past. Maybe some of us are walking in the sense that you are the first love, but God, I'm asking that you would, Lord, do something in us today that would help us to remember and repent. Father, that we would long for you more, that we would realize, recognize what this is all about. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the fact that Jesus would have called out Ephesus as the first church, you know, it's amazing. I think about John when he was on the island of Patmos receiving this vision, you know, and he was probably like really excited about some of the things that Jesus was initially saying. And then it probably would have begun to sting a little bit as he kind of got beyond the encouragement into the next things that he wanted to say. And it would have been challenging for him because uh, the early church fathers tell us that John was actually based at and one of the leaders of the church at Ephesus. It had become a very significant church. Uh, of course, before that time, Paul had planted the church during a great revival a great move of God's spirit in that city. It was a very dark place. Uh, there was, it was the central center of, uh, of uh, worship of the goddess uh, Diana. She was the goddess of fertility. There was a whole lot of uh, immoral things that would happen in the worship of this, uh, of this goddess. And a lot of occult and witchcraft and huge city. And God moves powerfully there. Paul plants the church. He sets in Timothy as the leader. I mean, Paul invests a long amount of time there, like three years. Timothy's leading that church. And then um, church tradition tells us that John even brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus because he made this commitment to Jesus to look after her. And you think about that leadership team of that church. You know, you've got planted by Paul, Timothy, letter written to this church, John uh, there, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so as he's hearing this, he would have begun to receive this in an almost very personal way. It would have been a very challenging message to him. And it came at a time, obviously, when there was, as I said before, extreme opposition. Um, coming not only from the outside, but uh, also from within the church, as I said. And one of the things that John was very passionate about was upholding the truth. 
It was said by uh, Irenaeus, who was discipled by Polycarp, who uh, church tradition tells us was discipled by John. He tells this story where John is going into the, um, the, the bathhouse in Ephesus, and um, he sees this false apostle who was preaching heresy, uh, Serinthus. And he, Polycarp says that he, he, John goes in, sees him, and begins to run out of the building, screaming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. John had this passion for upholding truth. He was waging war against the opposition that was coming against the gospel. What's amazing is that John, of all of the people who should not have lost Jesus as first love, I mean, he was the one who was the closest of all of the followers of Jesus. He had this close friendship with Jesus. And yet John had even lost his focus on what mattered most. We've been obviously in a, in a season, all of us, global pandemic, um, government overreach, economic storms on the horizon. You know, we can often tend to try to harden ourselves up against what's coming. Begin often like the, the church at Ephesus to begin to make it all about, I just got to be strong. I just got to withstand. I have to speak against that which is out there in the world. We can become so wrapped up in fighting the battles that it feels that we have to fight that we can lose sight of really what it's all about and where our strength and grace comes from. And so before we can grow at all in our relationship with Jesus, we got to first understand, and really this is the, the first, I think, significant insight we can pull from this passage, that Jesus is walking among us as both our encourager and our corrector. He is walking among us to encourage and correct the reference here to the seven golden lampstands, these are these seven churches. Jesus says, I'm walking amongst you. Like I said, of all the, of Jesus' disciples, John was his closest friend. They had a friendship, a closeness. And yet John is the one who gets this revelation of Jesus. We see in chapter one of Revelation where he falls down on his face. He has a picture of Jesus, a revelation of him that causes him to move beyond the familiarity of friendship and worship him as Lord. Jesus came to him and he came as the encourager, but he also came to correct. We all love Jesus, the encourager, don't we? It's good when Jesus brings that encouraging word but do we love and will we receive Jesus, the corrector, the one that wants to speak into our life? We love him as friend. We love him as savior. But will we respond to him as Lord when he begins to point things out and he's calling us and challenging us to 
repent. I've told you all many stories of my beginning months of following Jesus. I was 21 years old, third year at university, get right with God, alone in my bedroom. I'd heard about this church that I was going to go check out the following Sunday. And even that first week before I even visited that church, I had gotten right with God and he begins to put his finger on things in my life. That cannot be a part of your life anymore if you're going to serve me. You're escaping into this high, you're, 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 you, you are um, looking to this substance to, to bring some um, balm to these places of your soul that are, that, that are broken. I, I, that can't be a part of your life anymore if you're going to serve me. He began putting his finger on other things. You need to start to shift the way that you, you look at women. I mean, I can remember the early days showing up at church and it literally, I'd spend the first couple of minutes just sizing up the ladies in the room like, okay, well, she's a possibility or maybe her. And he's, no, 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 no. You, you've got all these things in your soul that, that have been given first place. I want to have first place in your life. But it's amazing. This is not just something that God does in the beginning. I mean, even over these last 10 days of prayer and fasting, God has been bringing conviction into my heart. He's been correcting me. I think sometimes as Pentecostal, the charismatic Christians, we can get it all wrong when it comes to God's grace. We can um, sometimes maybe get caught up in, in a legalism and really not understand his grace. Of course, that's a problem. But then we can also have this attitude where we really cheapen the grace of God. And we think that he's, God doesn't really care about the way that I live. Or maybe we put our head in the sand because we're really afraid to acknowledge some of the things that God wants to put his finger on and, and call us to repent in these areas. And so over the last 10 days, I had this one morning where I was meditating uh, in, in the gospels and God again just begins to address the love of money in my heart and, and take me back through things in uh, over the last couple of years where, where I didn't put him first. He says, who's got first place? Am I your first love or is that your first love? Even in some of our prayer meetings, one of the things that kept coming to the surface was the fear of man and this tendency to care way more about what other people think about us than what Jesus thinks, locks us up, makes it hard for us to pray when we're with other people, makes us feel timid and insecure when we're around people who are far from God. That's not the way he calls us to live. But the root of the problem is not just a fear. It's that Jesus doesn't have first place. The, the opinions of other people do. And so he is rooting these things out of me. He's, he's uprooting them, pulling these things out of my heart in this season. Can I just ask you today, have you given Jesus the right to correct you? Does he have the freedom to speak into your life, not just as the encourager, but as the corrector? Are there any parts of the heart that are off limits? When we look deeper into what is corrected in the Ephesians church, we can see that it strikes at the very heart of what matters most to Jesus. If we look at verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
you've lost your first love. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, if a love relationship with me is not your greatest pursuit, then every other religious activity in your life is worthless. It's worthless. Everything that you do, all of the activity, if Jesus is not the greatest pursuit, if it doesn't come out of a passionate love for him, then it's all meaningless. Crazy that he's so serious about this, that he says that if you do not correct this problem, if you do not return to me as first love, I am going to remove from you your lampstand. I'm going to remove from you your right to even exist as a church. Without me as your first love, there you have, you're going to have absolutely nothing of any value to give anyone else. Your influence is going to diminish. You're going to go through all the religious activity, but there will come a point when your influence is completely snuffed out and you will cease to exist as a community. If you do not make me your first love. It was as if Jesus was saying, I do not want you calling yourself a church if you're going to make it about all these other things and I am not the most important person, thing, anything in your life. Only a church where Jesus is the first love. Can there be true, healthy disciples multiplied? Jesus doesn't want us multiplying religious activity. But man, when there is a first love of him, it's crazy that from the outside, the Ephesians church looked like they had it going on. Of all the seven churches that were addressed, the Ephesians church was the largest. It was the most influential. It was the oldest of all of these churches. And there was a moment when Pastor Corey was sharing about how he took over the lead role of what's now Numa Church the oldest, one of the most influential Pentecostal charismatic churches in the country. And one of the elder prophetic apostolic leaders in our nation said something to the effect of, you better be careful how you lead this church or Jesus will remove your lampstand. This church at Ephesus was the church where the Apostle Paul spent the most time, three whole years. He spent more time there than anywhere else. A church birthed in revival, much like Numa Church. A church that, when the church was birthed, all of these people who had been practicing the occult brought all of their witchcraft books and burnt them in a big pile in the city. In today's money, about 10 million Australian dollars worth of books just burnt right there in the middle of the city. 
idol worshipers going out of business because so many people were being born again that nobody was buying their stuff. They were getting angry. There were riots. From the outside, it looked like the Ephesian church had it going on. I mean, imagine if somebody shows up. Imagine if, it, if Steve McCracken showed up here at our church and, you know, he's like, man, you guys are continuing to believe you are standing firm against spiritual opposition. You've been persecuted. Your lives are being threatened. And you, you, you are standing firm. Well done. Man, you are, you, there have been false teachers who've risen up inside of your church and you have called them out. You've rebuked them publicly. You've renounced what they've taught. You've, you've trusted and, and preserved the true gospel. Well done. You've called out sin in the church. You're, you've got a high standard of, of holiness. Well done, man. You would have think, thought, man, this is the greatest church. The church at Ephesus, they were passionate about being faithful. They were passionate about their morals. They were passionate about the truth. But they didn't have a passion for Jesus. They were going through the motions. It had all become about their activity to preserve something that from the outside looked like it was healthy, but from the inside, there began to be a rot and a decay. Revival has to be personal before it can be corporate. Each and every one of us have to have this, this first love, remembering and repenting, turning to him, elevating him to first place, which brings us to third thing here we can pull out. Recovering our first love begins with remembrance and repentance. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do, do the works you did at first. Jesus is calling them to first, can you look back at a time? Remember, look back at a time when the fiery passion for Jesus was red hot. Can you look back to a time when what primarily drove you was that passion for me? As I've been reflecting on this, I've been thinking, trying to remember and think back through my life and my 25 years of following Jesus and began to hear the Holy Spirit say, do you remember when you would just pour out your heart in written prayers to me in your journals? I have a stack of journals, a box full of them. And I can remember, I can, I remember once pulling them out and reading through some of these prayers and almost blushing. I was almost a little bit embarrassed because it was like, it was like a, it was like a conversation between lovers. I remember reading and thinking, man, I don't really talk to Jesus like that anymore. Where'd that man go? Do you remember when you couldn't wait to be in my presence on a Sunday when the people of God would gather together? I used to just 
hang out my whole week for those, that moment of corporate worship in the presence of God. I was remembering when I would sit on my couch as a new believer and just, just have my headphones on and just listening to sermon after sermon, weeping on the couch as God would speak to me about how much he loved me, about his presence, and about the vision of the kingdom of God filling the earth. Not because I needed to prepare a sermon or I would just sit and just soak in the word of God. Do you remember, Jason, when you would sit in front of your friends and you would beg and plead with them persistently to turn to, to me? Do you remember when there was an urgency about your evangelism, about sharing me with others? Do you remember the time when I spoke to you when you were coming out of the cafe and I said, I want you to preach to all these people outside on the deck. Do you remember when you did it? I did it. And I actually took off running as fast as I could afterwards. There's no altar call. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this, Jesus. And I, I, I said, I just want you to know, Jesus changed my life. He loves you and he can change your life. Why? I because I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to do it. Jesus was saying to the Ephesian church, remember the, remember the way you used to pray. Remember the way you used to talk to me. Remember the way that you sought me. Do you remember the way that you, you fervently preached? It wasn't all about preserving the religious and preserving the message and yeah, that's all great, but there, there was a love for me and a love for people that drove you to extend my kingdom into this city. Remember from where you've fallen. See, you're not loving me as you once did. Can I ask you, can you think back? Can you remember a time in your life where maybe you're, there, was, there was a passion for Jesus that was hotter than it is today? Revival begins when we remember what needs to be revived. What is it that needs the wind of the Spirit to be blown upon? But remembering alone is not enough. He says to repent. Repentance literally means a change of mind. It's a shifting of perspective. It's a taking sides with God against our sin against that which we have elevated to the first love place in our heart. There will always be a first love in our hearts. It will either be Jesus or it will be something else. Repentance is Jesus. I see what you are pointing out in my life. I recognize that that is your enemy and so I make it my enemy. Jesus, you hate this sin, this idolatry in my life, and so I also hate it. It's a shifting of mind, change of mind perspective. It's saying, Jesus, I can see the complacency 
in my heart. I can see the apathy. I can see that how I've been going to your table already full. Imagine, I know Lives is at home. She's cooking a feast. And on the way home, I stop by Mac's and get the quarter pounder with cheese. And I come in, no, no, I'm all good, babe. I just swung by Mac's. How does Jesus feel when we show up in his presence and, and, and there's no hunger left because we've been looking to all these other things to fill us up? We've been meeting the needs of the soul temporarily with all the other things and no hunger left for Jesus. He says, repentance is when you acknowledge that is an enemy of your hunger for me. Take sides with me against that thing. Turn from it. Can we have the worship team come back up? There's one more truth that we need to respond to here and recognize that remembering and repenting is the starting point. But recovering our first love requires the right kind of works. He says, remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. I can remember early in our marriage when, man, the emotions of love were red hot. And they still are today. But man, it came so easy then. Man, the chemicals in the brain, the hormones, and I can remember there were times I would go on a road trip and I was supposed to be back on Wednesday, three hour drive away, and Tuesday night at 11 a.m. I'd get in the car and drive back home because I just wanted to sleep in the same bed with my lover, with my wife. There was a longing to be with her. But with anything in any relationship, as the newness wears off when the honeymoon is over, intimacy requires some work. Attitudes, selfishness begin to manifest. You got to walk through some things together. Issues come up in the surface of the heart and there's offense and there's opportunities for bitterness. There's opportunity for distraction. There's allures in other directions. There's opportunity to deprioritize and elevate something else above. Long-term intimacy requires work. After 21 years of marriage, we continue to work for deeper intimacy. We had a moment last night sitting on the couch working for deeper intimacy. Jesus wants these works of intimacy more than he wants our works of ministry or 
anything else. He wants us to lay our souls naked, vulnerable before him and say, will you do the work of intimacy? Will you replace those things that have been elevated? Will you replace me with those things? The work of intimacy says, Jesus, I see what you are pointing out in my soul that I have given first place. Jesus, I want you. I will let go of whatever I have to let go of to have you as first place, as first love. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.